Um, let me start with, can you help me with the handouts for today? This is the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But as we often need in times like these, we need a little bit of a humor break. And so I don't know if any of you uh, know of or follow the Babylon Bee. The Babylon Bee is a wonderful uh, satire site run by Christians. And yesterday, they had five amazing headlines. The first one, Chick-fil-A announces their new bottled sauces won't open on Sunday. <laughs> Second, Joe Biden says, I'll survive the coronavirus just like I survived the Black Death. <laughs> anyway, oops. Uh, parents worried they'll have to raise their own children as government schools yeah. shut down. Yeah. <laughs> Drug cartels have switched to producing hand sanitizer. <laughs> and last headline was, no greater love. Widow puts last toilet paper roll in the offering plate. Oh, 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 that's low. Really funny. Trista got something on her phone. It was a picture of three or four rolls of toilet paper, a bottle of Lysol, and some hand sanitizer. And the caption was, we'll trade for this one. <laughs> we'll trade for a Tesla. I love it. That's a, a moolah there. I also saw one uh, meme which was a bottle of hand sanitizer, but it was Tabasco hand sanitizer. You don't touch your face and eyes after washing your hands with that. <laughs> Very funny. Or another one I saw was a woman all dressed in white, white haired, white shoes, white socks, everything, in a garage that was stacked floor to ceiling, front to back with toilet paper. And the headline was, Richest Woman in America. <laughs> anyway, you know, you have to find humor in these situations like this. Um, obviously, our text is 1 Corinthians 15, and as I have been want to do of, of late, I wrote out a preamble of some preliminary thoughts and ideas. Um, I have a blog post that goes out tomorrow morning to our, our mailing list, and I'm going to read you a portion of it, just to say this is what's been heavy on my mind as I've been thinking through this. And while the blog is intended for writers, and I do have a conclusion intended for writers, which I won't read for you, but this is what I wrote. I said, the coronavirus is, on the, is a topic on everyone's mind. Your community, your family, and even yourself may have been affected, or could be affected. Maybe not by the virus itself, but by the economic and societal fallout of cancellations and the shutdown of communities. But I land on the fact that God is bigger than any virus. He wasn't surprised by it. Only we were. Therefore, we should trust his sovereignty over all things. 72 years ago, um, C.S. Lewis wrote some words 
in an article called On Living in an Atomic Age. This was posted on the Gospel Coalition website last Thursday. And I'd like to read it, but substitute the word atom bomb with the word coronavirus. This is C.S. Lewis. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the coronavirus. How are we to live in a virus age? I'm tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, is you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the coronavirus was discovered. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics. And we have them still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. This is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we're all going to be destroyed by the coronavirus, let that virus, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint in a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about viruses that may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. Consider these words. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. God says, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither, never, never, neither let them be afraid. Fear has seized our society. But fear of what? Getting sick? Ooh, you coughed. <laughs> so do I. Well, the signs. I mean, we, we get to that point. Or is it the fear of death? Well, 
Despite the innumerable advances in medicine, we haven't found a way to do away with people's fear of death. Ernest Becker wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book in 1973 titled, The Denial of Death. Uh, I had to read it when I was taking a class on uh, systematic theology with, at Fuller Seminary. Extraordinary book, very secular. But in it, Ernest Becker claims that the core problem for all of humanity is the fear of death. Some medicate it, some do as Kierkegaard call it, tranquilize it with triviality, some ignore it, or others overcome it through what is called the heroism of the mind. It's a combination of psychology and religion, whatever you want to call it. The problem, in my opinion, is that it becomes a human construct and ultimately fails. But this fear of death is nothing new. Psalm 55, verse 4 and 5. David writes, My heart is in anguish within me. The terror of death assail me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. That's what, 3,000 years ago? Yeah, more like 2,500 if you want to do the math right. But anyway. But in 1 Corinthians 15, we have one of the most exhilarating passages in the Bible. Verse 26 reads, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The triumph of Christ over death. The certainty then that we have of an eternal life. Through Christ we have conquered death. It is not we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Therefore, we have nothing to fear as believers. O death, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy victory? Problem is, the... Um, that the reaction to this idea of resurrection takes seven different seven different means or has seven different ways that people react to it. The first is I have to use the green pen. <laughs> Rationalism. That's where people attempt to try to explain it or explain it away. Second reaction is unbelief. Um, well, good grief. Leaf, <laughs> here we go. There we go. Unbelief. I before it, he except after L. Um, <laughs> rationalism, unbelief, which is a natural reaction to rationalism. Then we have doubt. That's where just simply they're not sure. Uh, there is indifference. Whereas we find an awful lot of people who just don't care. 
ignorance. They just simply ignore it. They don't, don't, even want, don't even want to talk about it. I mean, they're not even willing to engage in the debate. They just, just ignore it completely. The sixth reaction is hostility. And we find this all over our society where they attempt to squash every aspect of Christianity, especially the resurrection. And the last reaction to it is faith, which is where I would hope everyone in our room here lands, where there is belief instead of unbelief. How important is the doctrine of the resurrection? Well, Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Just believing that there is a God isn't Christianity. Believing that there is a God, because that's always this interesting poll question. Do you believe that there's a God? Well, yeah. Anybody can answer that of any faith, any religion. But do you believe <coughs> that Jesus was raised from the dead? Well, maybe. Um, what are you talking about? Absolutely not. There's all these reactions to it. This becomes a key point to the faith. I mean, we even declare this in the Apostles' Creed now every week. Are we reading? Actually reading the passage that we are reading out loud? What we believe? We have to remember that in the Greek culture of the time of the writing of the Corinthians, <clears throat> the Greeks did not believe in a resurrection of any sort. The Sadducees so we had the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were part of the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. Pharisees did. Sadducees did not believe in it. And the Sadducees were the closest aligned to Greek culture. In fact, when Rome collapsed, so did the Sadducees. They were culturally connected. So you walk in, imagine walking into this Corinthian congregation which has Greeks and Jews who don't believe in a resurrection. And 60 miles away, Paul was in Athens. And when he was up on the Areopagus, Mars Hill, he is preaching and they called him a babbler. Acts 17 verse 18, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He wasn't just preaching about the, that Jesus existed and he was the Messiah. He was preaching the resurrection. So he's a babbler. And in verse 32 of Acts 17, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked. Paul leaves Athens and goes to Corinth. And here he is, three or four years later, writing to Corinth, about the resurrection. It's still an issue in this church, in this congregation. And so, 
Paul brings this entire conversation to us today, 1 Corinthians 15. What an absolutely appropriate topic, considering what the chaos of fear that's gripped everyone, and you want to step back and go, am I afraid? Well, no. And if I get sick, okay. I mean, how many, I, I came across a novel that I, it was tickling in the back of my mind that I had read it almost 40 years ago. So I went digging through my myriad of shelves and I found it. It's a, no, a novel, it's completely unknown today, called The Celebrant. And it's a historical novel of a true life priest in New Jersey in 1878. The yellow fever epidemic broke out in Memphis. And this man felt called of God, he was an Episcopal priest, to leave New Jersey in the safety of his parish and go minister to the people in Memphis with a yellow fever. And the entire book is this extraordinary um, expression of his love for others to be able to walk in amongst the sick and to talk with them, pray with them, administer the sacraments with them. Unfortunately, he died of yellow fever. But he died knowing that he served God and served people. And to this day, the people in Memphis talk about him. 130 years later, Growing up in Hawaii, they, uh, there's a statue in front of the state capitol. This short little guy with a wide-brimmed, you know, circular hat, Father Damien. Nobody knows who he is, uh, except those who learn about it. Father Damien felt called to go live on the island of Molokai, which was the leper colony. And he ministered to the people in, on, in the, the, the island of Molokai where all of the lepers of the world were sent. It was like the, you know, they, Britain sent their prisoners to Australia to get them out of their, their island, sent them to another island. People would send them to Molokai to die. And he ministered to them some 30 some odd years before he finally contracted the disease and died of it as well. And he's memorialized in the front of the capital of the state for his sacrifice as a picture of, you know what? We are temporary, as C.S. Lewis put it, on this earth. We live with a hope that's greater than any of this. So it was, I was curious, I realized that we studied the resurrection in detail. In 2017, eight weeks we spent on the resurrection. So how many of you were here then? Okay, we've got five of us. That means the rest of the class was not. And so the five that are here, how many of you remember everything I said? 
you've had three years to study it. Come on. You know, I mean, you should be up here teaching this class then. So it was fascinating for me to step up here, look at my notes from back then, what I was teaching. Of course, it was part of our, our uh, study of the Gospels. And we had an eight-week period where, and it happened to be around Easter, which was amazing. So here we are three years later. It happens to be around Easter. And here we are talking about the resurrection again. And then I read verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, three years ago. Paul was in Corinth three years earlier. It's the same period of distance. So those of you who are in this class, you may remember, oh yeah, we studied that, and yeah, that was very interesting and all of that. But I don't remember the details. Or if I had to, I could look it up. I mean, Mr. Google is always very friendly with those kinds of things. Unfortunately, when you do a Mr. Google, you find some really wild stuff that come up in your search engines. Trust me, I do it for you. Um, so here's Paul. Obviously, if we go through our rehearsal of all the first 14 chapters of all this trouble in this church and all the questions that they are having, obviously the issue of the resurrection has come up and is problematic. So he spends, what, 58 verses on this? We are not going to cover all 58 verses today. In fact, I broke the, I'm going to break this up into three different sections because it naturally breaks, that, breaks it into that. This first section you can call Evidences for the Resurrection if you want to give it a title. But I would remind you of what I preached, which you received, and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Some would go, well, how was that working? I mean, I thought, once saved, always saved. Well, it's a, this, as Paul would use his language, is sanctification, moving from glory to glory, as you find in 2 Corinthians 3. But the key, in my opinion, of that verse is the next word, if. So I put it two capital letters, I, F, circled it right next to that. If you hold fast to the word I preached you, unless you believed in vain. So you can imagine, we don't have the specifics here, but you can imagine there may be some in the congregation who are now starting to rumble because they came from either a Greek background or a Jewish background that did not believe in the resurrection. They're saying, but you know, we can believe it was Jesus the Messiah and all that, but the idea that a, a human being raised from the dead, come on. Let's just dispense with that and have believe in the rest. You know there's Christians today. Unfortunately, I can't really give them that name because if they don't believe this, they're not Christians. But there are those today who purport to be Christians that preach that Jesus did not rise from the dead. It was all a construct. But we can still believe 
they haven't read 1 Corinthians 15. Or if they have, they toss it out. So when you you look at this, I'm going to read verses 3 and 4, then we'll come back and pull it apart. For I delivered as to you, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And, verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, etc. Circle the word that. How many times is it there? Three times in the first two verses, but four times if you add verse 5. Each is a separate clause. Each is a separate statement. Each is a separate declaration of the resurrection. Of who Christ is. And, as I gave you a little outline at the bottom of your page, it's actually... the gospel presented in a very simple form. If you want to walk someone through or remember the basics of what is the gospel, just remember these six things. Put them in the back of your Bible. Put them on a note card. Stick it in your wallet. Number one, that Christ, notice he didn't write the word Jesus. He used Jesus' title. Remember, Christ was not his last name. His last name was Bar-Joseph. So Jesus Christ. Christ is Christos, or the Anointed One. It is the Greek word that in Hebrew is the word Messiah. If you go into the Septuagint, wherever the word Messiah is used, they use the Greek word Christos. Every time. That's what it means. So right away, right up front, Paul declares that Christ was the Messiah. That's to the Jews in the group. Bam. You you can argue that if you'd like, but he has to start there. Because if you don't believe that, well, the rest of it's going to be a little bit of an uphill battle, but the rest defends that statement that Christ died. Now, there are some in the Muslim faith that say that Jesus never died, as the scriptures say, but that he died an old man somewhere. They just, in other words, they're pretty much saying it just didn't happen, the way it's written. But generally, it's rare to find anyone that would argue that Jesus died. There's just too much discussion around it, too many other things happening, too much historical uh, statements related to it. So we can accept that Jesus died. But then it says, for our sins. Well, that's interesting. That's another theological statement, heavy, rich with meaning. The whole idea of the atonement, the, uh, the, that God is pure and holy. No one can come to him unless they are pure and holy. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system was set up around this idea that blood has to be shed to 
cover the sins, to wash it away, so that then the people can, be, can uh, respond to him. I'm not articulating it that perfectly, but I get, you get the general idea. Well, in Romans, uh, Paul writes it in a rather dramatic fashion. Uh, Romans 5, 9, and 10. <clears throat> Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be, desa- be saved by him from the wrath of God? For with If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And then in 5, 18 and 19, Therefore, as one trespass or one sin led to condemnation for all mankind, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all mankind. For as by the one man's disobedience there were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. It's very clear. He is saying the Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures. And the scriptures are the Old Testament. So we have the whole Old Testament story of sacrifice and he's saying this is what Christ embodied then he says and he was buried hmm again this is mostly undenied there is one uh, well known New Testament scholar if I can use the air quotes he is very scholarly but Dominic Crossan says that Jesus was not buried in a tomb. He was tossed into a mass grave like all the others were. Well, if that's true, then the whole rest of the gospel accounts doesn't make a whole lot of sense, for one thing. Um, and also, what about this whole Joseph of Arimathea thing, that this was a special tomb, was set aside, um, it wouldn't make sense for that story if he was just tossed in a mass grave and forgotten. So you can ignore the uh, general idea of him not being buried. Most likely he was. And then the next that, that he was raised on the third day. Now, I went through a number of these theories about the the fact that the resurrection didn't happen, Uh, but I'll go through them again. They're not uncommon. They still circulate. You may run into them in someone that you're talking to about Christianity and about the resurrection. They might throw one of these at you, so don't be surprised because you've now heard it, and you can be prepared. The first one and the oldest one is what theory? Swoon. Hmm? Swoon. No, the oh. oldest one. Oh. The very first theory. Stolen body. The stolen body. Oh. Because the Pharisees did it. They're the ones who claimed it. Remember, they paid off the Roman soldiers to say that the body was stolen. So that's the oldest one. Is that they just came in and stole the body. Well, let's look at that for a second. Number one, 
for a Jew to desecrate a burial site is highly unusual. In fact, it never happened because that was just one of the worst things. Number one, to handle a dead body, for one thing, is, was a challenge because of the, um, the ritual, uh, what's my word, um, defilement. And they would have to go all this rigmarole to try to get themselves undefiled if they were religious of any sort. And we know these people were religious. So, but what would be their motive? Um, well, the motive would be just to, you know, snooker everybody. But if that was the motive, then how do they get past the guards? I mean, did they overpower them? Um, did they bribe them? I mean, these, these soldiers are really rich. First, they get bribed by the disciples. Then they get bribed by the Pharisees. I mean, they're off on some island living with their boats and their fish because they made so much money on this event. No, that would become probably fairly well known that something else was going on. And then there's the neatness of the tomb. Why would they take the time to unwrap the body and the burial cloths and remove all the spices and leave them there? doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. It's a simple theory, and obviously it's the one that the Pharisees came up with, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, there was another one. Um, <laughs> I had never heard this one before, but in 1995, someone came up with the uh, idea that he had a twin separated at birth. Oh, <laughs> and was unknown until the crucifixion, and they substituted. That's the, un, that's the long shot theory. The long shot theory, yeah. It's like the lottery theory. Um, wow, that, that's really creative, but sorry, no. <coughs> Second most common one, you mentioned it, the swoon theory. <coughs> it was popularized by the Passover plot book in the 60s and 70s. <coughs> This is that he never died and he just fainted. So all the rest of it was made up. So the idea that he just passed out, you know, it's very possible he did pass out, but then he recovered, but he was still on the cross. So I have one, two, three, four, five different books on the medical um, aspects of the crucifixion. Uh, they're fascinating. They're gory, gruesome, but they're fascinating. One of my clients just published a book with uh, our Daily Bread Ministries, and it didn't, does not focus on the Christian part of the crucifixion story. It focuses on how the Romans did it and how they viewed it. So you have all this... Um, historical data and commentary from Roman literature about crucifixion specifically, not about this one event with Jesus. And as he put it, he said, you have to realize the Romans were really good at this. They had a lot of practice. So they knew exactly how to kill somebody 
in agony and make it last. The shocking part of Jesus' crucifixion is he died so fast. And we know that that was in order to uh, die before the Sabbath. This was the whole part of the story. Uh, There was some intentionality there in that regard. But when they pierced his side, the statement is that blood and water came out. So I read a very detailed, and I won't gore you too much, but the, the doctor who was writing this said he believes that Jesus actually died of, a, of heart failure. And when the heart fails, the blood pools in the left atrium because that's what gets pushed out. So it comes in, push out, comes in, push out. And when it pools there, and then you are pierced on the side, if it pierces that, blood will come out. And the water, he said, have you ever had a wound that's oozing? There's always a clear liquid that's there as well. And that's part of that healing process. So this idea of blood and water, it's very evident the man was dead. There's no question about it. That is a signal of death. And that's why the Romans would pierce the side to double check. They wouldn't go up and put their finger under the guy's nose to see if he was bleeding. They didn't want to climb up the pole. You had a thought? I just wanted to mention that in in regards to the proof of how expert they were, they knew just exactly how to stab a body Mm -hmm. to hit the heart. Between the fourth and the fifth rib. From down below. I mean, not he's not sitting in front of them. He's hanging up above them. That's right. That's how expert they were, how they knew their business. They, they, they just went eh, right there, boom. They, and they'd done it how many times that right, day? Right, Just like when you, if you hunt and you've skinned an animal, you know exactly what you're doing after you've done it a yeah. hundred times. Yeah. It's very gruesome, but factual. The other idea that if he had fainted, then why did Joseph ask for the body? That means you have a member of the Sanhedrin as part of the conspiracy. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Thirdly, they wrapped him in 75 pounds of spices. He would have suffocated. You don't wrap the body and just leave a, you know, put a little you know, straw saying, breathe deeply, you know, and while he's in the tomb, that's not going to work. He was sealed in the tomb, so if he swooned, how did he unwrap himself and move the rock and get past the guards? And also, how did he even walk? The flogging alone. Uh, One of the pictures that my client in his book found was a drawing again, not the Christian time, this is much prior, was the back of someone who had been flogged. And they actually drew the marks. And it's just, it's just this weird carving. And you're looking at it. There's also the question of, was he hung on a pole? Was he hung on a T-shaped cross? Was it a cross-shaped cross? Well, there's another drawing in the first century B.C., I'm sorry, first century A.D., of a donkey on a cross. 
Now, this was a um, anti-Christian representation, but it was in a cross shape. So they're trying to say that if that's what their depiction of, most likely that's what we have. Another theory. The women went to the wrong tomb. Oops. You know, I thought it was men who didn't know how to ask for directions. Sorry. But they go to the wrong tomb. Um, well, for one thing, it wasn't a s typical c cemetery. It was a burial plot on private land. So there wouldn't have been 25 or 30 of them in a row when they walk into the wrong one. And, you know, if they walked into the wrong one, then why didn't the Jews just go, oh, well, here he is, you idiots. You went in the wrong place, you know, and produced the dead body. They didn't, because they couldn't. Fourth, it was a hallucination. The disciples wanted to believe it so much, they all hallucinated his risen um, visage. Well, psychology says that groups of people, especially a group of 500, which we have noted later in 1 Corinthians 15, never that many at once can have a group hallucination of this nature. You can have forms of hypnosis, uh, which some magicians have been able to prove, but usually that's for using a form of misdirection and other kinds of means, but not this. And then secondly, if they hallucinated it, then where's the body? You have to keep coming back to that physical body. Um, now there's a variation. The Jehovah Witnesses teach that um, it was a spiritual and not a physical resurrection. And that's becoming a very common statement among people. Saying it's just, it was just spiritual. It wasn't physical, but it's, it's, you know, it was a spirit body. Well, why do you think then in scriptures that you have the doubting Thomas saying, put your hand in my scars? The physical touch. That one scene of all the scenes, why is it there? It's there to counter a theory that's still prevalent 2,000 years later. Didn't have to put that detail in there, but they did. Yeah. And the eating of food. And the eating of food, exactly. Exactly. Then the last one, which is a very common one, is that it was just a myth. The whole thing is literary fiction from end to end. And it was created decades later by those who needed to have some way of supporting their belief system. I mean, I've read some rather dramatically liberal uh, books on how Paul invented Christianity. And this is one of the things he invented. Well, if they invented it, they did a really hack job of inventing it because the, the stories don't match. You go to any policeman and say, if you have three people who are witnesses to an event, they'll have three different forms of the same story. They will not match. And if they do, we immediately wonder, when did they talk to each other 
and get their story straight. This is one of the challenges of detective work. Of course, now we have so much video, but see, then uh, two views of the same thing can show something different, depending on your perspective. Um, but if it was a myth and they made this thing up, then what? how can we attribute the massive growth of Christianity and the passionate fervor of the disciples? They were willing to die and did for this. So one, one guy wrote this, and I thought this was absolutely brilliant. If it was common for those who would make up things like this and create movements... What happens when their leader died? The movements tended to go away. We have Judas the Galilean, a man named Simon, a man named Athrogness, another one, Eliezer ben Denius, Alexander Menahem, Simon Barglera, and Bar Kokhba. You haven't heard of any of those. These were all well-known Jewish zealots and very uh, charismatic leaders who had followings in this time frame, in this period of time, the first century AD. Every single one of these. And every single one of them, the movement died with the fall, with the leader. So why is it that in this case, when he died, the thing took off? It doesn't make sense. Because it's the only one of its kind that has this type of thing that goes together. So that goes to some of the theories of why Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. But then I thought of the phrase which is there twice, verse 3 and verse 4, according to the scriptures. Okay, we can go with that in verse 3. That he died for our sins and according to the scriptures because of the sacrificial system. But he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. What scriptures? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John haven't been written yet. Is he referring to his own letters? No, he's referring to the Old Testament. But what Old Testament? Well, Hosea 6.2, God will restore Israel on the third day. Jonah 1.17, Jesus cited this one, that Jonah was inside the fish for three days and then was revived. Isaiah's prophecy of the resurrection in Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12 are there. But most important of all of them is in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 36. Acts chapter 2, Peter is giving a sermon at Pentecost. And he quotes, verse 25, he quotes 
Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. I saw the Lord always before me. He is in my right hand. I might not be shaken. He makes my heart glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh will dwell in hope. And he goes on. And then he ends with, in uh, verse 34, he's quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Peter is referring to the Old Testament as foundational for his appeal to the people of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter's sermon was was possibly heard by Paul. We don't know when he started his persecution, but it wasn't much long later that we have him stoning Stephen. Stephen's sermon is rather powerful. And then you have Paul himself in Acts chapter 9, meeting Christ himself on the road to Damascus. So you have this extraordinary statement of according to the scriptures, you go, wait, what scriptures? We can't cite the New Testament, didn't exist. But you can certainly find the resurrection in the Old Testament as a promise for the people of Israel. Then verses five and following, he appeared to Cephas, Not to Peter, which is interesting. He calls him by his Aramaic name. Whereas in the gospel passages about the appearances, it's always Peter. So Paul must have always called him Cephas. I just think that's kind of endearing. And gives some credibility here. Because again, it's an inconsistency, if you'd like. Oh, I have a handout. I forgot to get the handout. This is a big handout. Three big pages on it. Uh, Yeah, it's heavy. Page one of this particular handout are 14 evidences of the resurrection. I had actually thought of quizzing the class to see if you could come up with all 14, but I figured we'd be here for an hour while you racked your brains. Um, It's a a lot to to just rattle off. But now you have the tools yourself. There is a typo that I found after I printed it out, of course. Hmm? So what? I can't hear you. No, it's actually in number 10. The citation is 1 Corinthians 15, 7, not chapter 6, verse 1. I don't know why I did that, but anyway. Um, the second page of your handout is the one I want to point to, however. I'm actually kind of proud of this. Uh, I created this based on some material I'd seen before. Um, What you have here is a timeline of the major appearances post-resurrection. Starting when Resurrection Sunday are the first five. Then you have one somewhere, eight days maybe uh, or so. Then you have three that happened over the following weeks and then one on the 40th day, which was Mount of Olives and the um, ascension to heaven. Corinthians mentions three of them specifically. Four if you add a little element to it. So he said he appeared to Cephas. Well, there you see that in the third box. Actually, second one on the top row where he meets Simon Peter. We also find it in Luke 24. Then to the 12, 
Now you can, you'd have to combine the third box in the top and the third box in the bottom because those are two different appearances to the disciples. But then you also have the uh, eighth box where the disciples are at a gathering with 500, possibly, um, uh, in the following weeks. Now, there is a, let's see if I can find it here. Find my, here it is. There's a bit of a challenge for the verse where it says he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time because it's the only time in the New Testament that is mentioned. So it creates some consternation for those who like uh, uh, unity. There is nothing in the Gospels or in, the, or in Acts that corroborates any sort of meeting of 500 specifically. The nearest we have of any sort of number is 150 who gathered to appoint the successor to Judas in Acts 1, verse 75. But the key to this claim is not the claim of 500, but the rest of the verse, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Simply put, this was around 20 some odd years earlier was the resurrection when Paul wrote this. And he simply goes, go talk to him. If you doubt me, they're out there. I mean, why claim the number if it wasn't accurate? Because it would be so easy to go against it and say he's making it all up. I mean, Google it for goodness sake. Oh, wait, he couldn't have. But, you know, is, uh, is, were there fact checkers? And he's saying, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. They're down the street from you. There might have even been one in their congregation for all we know. Why would he make a claim like that if he couldn't back it up? Paul was not one for making outrageous statements without evidence. Then it says he appeared to James. Now, if you notice on my graphic chart. James is all by himself as the ninth uh, listing one. We're not exactly sure when this happened, but we know it happened before the 40 days. And in John chapter 7 verse 5, it was very clear that the brothers of Jesus did not believe him. They did not believe his claims. Next thing we know, chronologically, before 1 Corinthians 15 was written, Chronologically, we have in Acts that James, the brother of Jesus, is the head of the Jerusalem church. The people knew this. What caused the transformation from, hey bro, you're, you're, you're an idiot. You know, Don't bother us with this stuff at Thanksgiving dinner. Just be quiet. To, I support everything. I'm standing before you. <clears throat> and James would have been one of the ones who could have given testimony to his appearance. Because at this point, if we have our chronology right, James is still alive. Tradition has him being martyred by the Jews in Jerusalem in 69 AD. This book was written around 64 
or so, maybe 62. We're not quite sure exactly, because he failed to put the date on the top of his paper. Um, and then, of course, the last testimony he has is himself. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called Where's my verse? Oh, to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So you have this declarative statement, simple statement, Christ died for our sins, buried, raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And we have this eyewitness testimony. It's kind of hard to come against that. There's a lot of um, discussion these days in you know, how to present the gospel uh, in a world that's so incredibly secular. And many of them don't even have a starting point because they have not grown up in the church. They have no concept of what you're talking about. And there's a lot of discussion about, well, then tell your story. And so I've, I come up, came up with a phrase a while back, and I don't know if it's original or where it came from, but you know, Josh McDowell had his wonderful book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, that was a handbook for years on apologetics. But now, it's Evidence Demands a Story. So if you can stand as saying, Christ in me, this is how he transformed me. Therefore, I believe, and this is what I believe. If you start with the this is what I believe, you're creating a debate. But if you have a testimony, it's really hard for someone to say to you, well, that didn't happen to you. Really? How can you say that? I mean, if we're starting this conversation with you calling me a liar, we're going to have a tough time having a good conversation. So it's not a dialogue if you start there. That's hostility. But if you have a testimony, you can present the gospel in a meaningful fashion in some way. At least that's a lot of what's out there. <clears throat> in fact, Alistair McGrath just wrote a book called Narratives Apologetics. It's the whole idea of having a narrative and then have your apologetics flow out of that. Because when you start with uh, declarative statements, they're just waiting to attack. And rather than saying, well, I believe, and this is why I believe, and this is what I believe. So to wrap up our morning, I want to go back to my preamble, is that in these days, in these times, the fear of death or some apocalyptic event has overwhelmed our society's 
uh, minds. But remember these words. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. It is a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's 2 Timothy 1 and 1 Peter 1. Fear not. For behold, he brings us good news of great joy. And no, I'm not going into Advent. But he's giving us good news of great joy that death has been swallowed up in victory. And that's 1 Corinthians 15, 55, which we'll get to in a few other sessions. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together, for this opportunity to explore this glorious gift that you've given to us. This grace, this free gift for our salvation so that we can have hope and have no fear of anything this world brings to us. Let us be a beacon to those around us and say, why do you fear? Are you afraid? Are you afraid of what? And if so, do you know that I'm not afraid? And it's only we can say that because of your gift to us through the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.